This is Dune Talk, a DuneNewsNet.com production. Join us now for the latest Dune news, reactions, and lively discussions. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I uh, hope you're having a great week. Uh, so we're back here with uh, a new uh, Dune Talk show. So we're going to be continuing our scene-by-scene uh, review of the Dune movie. Uh, we're going to be picking up from the 74th minute, so continuing from the from the point where we left off uh, last week with uh, Seleucus Secundus. Uh, this is uh, Marcus Gabriel um, here today with uh, Garen. Hey, everybody. Good to be back again. It's Garen. Hi, everyone. Johnny Sobchek back again. Excited to dig into some more of this movie. We've come a good ways, but we still have a ways to go. This is only the halfway mark, I think, of the movie. Uh, Simon here. Excited to talk about it and hopefully get further on. Hey, but all the comments that we're talking about, we love this movie. If we didn't love this movie, it would have been like an episode and a half and been like, eh, that was all right, cool. Yeah, so before we continue uh, the review, let's uh, dive into some movie news. Dune movie news. So the first uh, story we have for today is we actually got a date for the Blu-ray release of, of Dune on, uh, on 4K in the United States. And that's going to be uh, January 11th, uh, 2021. So I know that, uh, Johnny, you, uh, you learned about this in the past uh, day or so. Like, have you heard anything else so far? No, I have not heard any, anything else uh, other than that this January 11th, Tuesday, uh, which is the typical release date for physical home media for movies, uh, is when it's going to be coming out. So that's great. It, January was always going to be the month just because it lines up with the other Warner Brothers home media releases of the last year or so. And now we have an actual date. This will be the second Tuesday in January. So earlier in the month, which is nice. And it'll be out, of course, Blu-ray, DVD, 4K, Ultra HD. I cannot wait. As soon as it's available, it doesn't seem to be listed anywhere yet. But yeah, as soon as it's available, I will be sure to, well, pre-order it myself. And then I will uh, probably tweet it out and list it, let people know so they can get it, get on it as well. Because um, not only is it going to be great that you can actually have it at home in the best possible audio quality, best possible visual quality, but also you can contribute more to the film's success because, you know, uh, we've talked about the box office a lot on this show. We've talked about profitability and we've talked about COVID and all these other things, HBO Max. Uh, and this is just another, I mean, home media, um, you know, depending on the movie, depending on how popular it is and how much people like it and seek it out, can make a big difference. It is already out in digital in, in some countries in, in Europe. So, for example, on, uh, in, in Germany, if you go to Amazon.de or like the, the Apple Store, you can buy it in, in 4K on, on digital. Um, so we'll, we'll keep you up to date when the, when the dates are announced for the United States. But uh, as, as Johnny was, was saying, it's definitely going to be before uh, the home media release. Um, and then in terms of the, the extras, so I know that we've, we've heard a little bit of, about like the overseas releases, like it's going to contain things like, for example, some of the featurettes that, that we've already seen. Um, any, any thoughts on, on what's going to be included um, in that release? Yeah, it's tough to say because, you know, part of, a big part of the marketing was doing these kind of behind the scenes and, uh, you know, interview type featurettes where we got to see behind the scenes footage. We got to see interviews with the cast and crew. So it's unclear at this point how much of that of what has already been released online is what we will see on the Blu-ray. Uh, supposedly, according to some of the overseas listings, they will have about over an hour of material for the special features. So fingers crossed um, that we get some fresh 
uh, stuff to look at. That'll be exciting. Doesn't seem like there's going to be any sort of commentary tracks or anything like that. I don't think Villeneuve has ever done one in the past. Um, we'll see what the future holds, but I wouldn't hold my breath on that. Uh, and of course, don't hold your breath for any deleted scenes or anything like that either. Or some some extended cut because that doesn't seem to be at least for now foreseeable future in the cards at all. And uh, this seems to get to be like, the definitive home release for the time being. Um, but yeah, like it, like I said. I would assume, I mean, over an hour, I'm trying to think of all the different stuff we've seen so far. Maybe that would add up to about that time, but I would, I think at least something on there will be new. Um, and once again, once we get more details and those listings come out in English and on, on Amazon or Blu-ray.com or what have you, we'll be able to see the actual listing of some of the featurettes on the back and we'll be able to figure out if they are totally new or not. Then the second story I uh, want to cover today is... Um... Some comments from uh, Denis Villeneuve. So he was in a recent interview with uh, Empire um, on, online and he was on their, their spoiler podcast. So you do have to have a subscription to access the whole uh, interview, but like the, they posted quite a lot of highlights on their, on their site and we've posted it on Dunusnet as, as well with uh, some additional commentary. Um, and one of his uh, comments uh, that stood out was, was regarding uh, Fade Ratha. Uh, so, of course, we, we had the confirmation earlier this year, like, for example, from the interviews with uh, Roger Yuan, the fight coordinator, that, you know, he was being cast as Lieutenant Lanville and that the plan was that he would return in part two uh, to fight uh, Fade in the, in the arena, which we know is uh, an, an important scene in the, in the book. Um, and um, then he had the following comment about that. So he was, of course, talking about that he had intentionally uh, left Fade for the second part of the movie just because so much stuff was already introduced in the first part and that whole interview talked a lot about the stuff that he sort of saved for part two. Uh, so the quote was um, when he was asked about the presence of, of Fade, uh, he said, definitely, uh, that's a choice I personally brought on. There was enough characters that were introduced in this first part and it will be more elegant to keep Fade for part two. It will definitely be a very, very important character in the second part. Uh, so I'll start with you, Garen. What are your thoughts when uh, the director says that Fade will have a very, very important uh, uh, part? So Fade, for those of you that, that know the story, you know Fade is the is the the counter to to Paul. Uh, he's similar in age. Uh, he's he's been brought up to be kind of the heir of of the Harkonnen house. So to me, it makes a lot of sense that you're going to. I mean, whether you wait till the second part or not, that that's neither here nor there because that's not the way it is in the book. But I, I respect Denis' decision there. But to have it be very important makes sense because this is going to be an interaction and a threat on kind of a grand scale. And so to me, that, that again, tells me that Denis knows the story. He knows the dynamics of the characters. And and there does need to be this this climactic interaction between these two people. And, and I just hope they cast it with someone that has the same sort of gravitas that, uh, that uh, Timothy Chalamet has, because that confrontation has got to feel really heavy, really intense. I like that he waited to introduce him into the second movie, because I feel like if he were brought him into the first movie, it would have been sensory overload. We already have a lot of characters, and I, I love that the internet thought that Raban and Faye were going to become one character in this version of Dune. I was like, no, come on. If you've ever read the book or seen any 
version of Dune, you know that's not possible. But um, it's building up a new character, and it's kind of like the Emperor again. It's these new characters that we're going to get introduced to that are crucial. And I feel like if they were shown in the first half, it would have been too much. And I have a good feeling early January, when the home release comes out, we're going to start hearing some casting. Uh, you mentioned that before, Simon, and that would make sense to me. I would certainly love to see it. The sooner the better. But uh, it uh, it's also interesting because, I mean, I never doubted that Fade would be in these movies. Uh, I presume that he wouldn't be in the first one because he was never mentioned or announced as a casting for the first movie. And it does make sense. I'm, I'm just, it's interesting now to finally hear a little bit of insight into why he decided to do that. Of course, first movie, you have to introduce a lot. You literally have to introduce the entire world to these, you know, to the audience. And so I think saving such an important and vital character for the second movie just makes perfect sense. And that includes not just Fade, but the Emperor and some others. Um, and I, yeah, I just, I really can't wait to see who they're going to go with. I mean, it's like, it feels so pointless to speculate. And we have done that to death. So I'm not going to go into all that. But I, uh, I'm glad to hear that, you know, I didn't hear the words come out of his mouth, but he's finally see it on on paper and to know that he is th- has been thinking about it and thinking about it in depth and for a long time is certainly promising. And, and you know, in that article, I don't know if we're going to get into that more, Marcus, but he did talk about some other elements of the universe that he, again, wanted to kind of leave for part two or wanted to leave uh, as a mystery for part one and explore and establish in more detail in part two, whether it's characters or different factions or, or even terms of the universe. Yeah. And I, th- I think we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in at later stages, but yeah, of course he talked about the, the emperor and the guild guild navigators as, you know, part of the mysterious elements. We, we got to see a little bit of the, the guild, but those were the uh, guild representatives. So yeah, we can look forward to seeing, I think, uh, yeah, really a lot in, in the part two. And yeah, I would say about uh, fade, um, if you think about the amount of time he's he's in the book, it's, it's actually not that much. But I do agree that he is a, a key character. And the way that they've been approaching this, this adaptation and, and adding more uh, depth to, to characters and, uh, you know, expanding on, on certain roles, like, um, yeah, I think it, it, it totally makes sense to, to call him a, a very, very important uh, character in the, in the book and, like, have that, that parallel parallel. Uh, with with Paul as as they both come of age and then they ha- they go up to the conflict at the end. Continuing with our scene by scene review of the movie, uh, so we're picking up from the seventy fourth uh, minute, and so, so basically we've we've cut away from uh, from Seleucus Secundus. We discussed the Sardaukar uh, last week, and now we return to to Arakine, and we see uh, a very worried Jessica walking down the, the, the hallway and like you can clearly see like the emotion and in her her body language uh, so Simon uh, looking at that that scene where Jessica's walking down the hallway what, what was your impressions of, of her in that moment just heartbreaking I think we originally saw it I think it was on Colbert we saw a little preview of it it's one of the best scenes in the movie it's also one of the saddest scene because it is, like I've been saying since we started doing this review, Leto knowing time is ticking and his time is almost over, as we're going to find out soon enough. Uh, I love, and I said this when we saw the preview of this scene, when Leto's like, please protect Paul. 
you know, just not as his mother, but as a Benny Gesserit and Hans Zimmer's music, we say every episode just comes and sneaks up slowly, and you hear that theme. Um, honestly, go back to a couple episodes because when we described the scene, I love the scene. It's one of my top five scenes. I really like how this this scene uh, helps the the viewer distinguish between Jessica's loyalty to the Duke and her loyalty that's inherent to the Bene Gesserit. So, so obviously it's a very compelling scene between these two characters that we already care about, but I, I like how it also teaches us that, you know, she really does have a level of deference to the Bene Gesserit and, and the audience could say, well, how much, you know, it, could she defect? Could she, what could her behaviors be if she has, you know, this connection to the Bene Gesserit that goes back even before she was a part of House Atreides? So I, I just think it was a, a really, I, I think Denis did a really good job of making really specific decisions about certain uh, conversations between characters to, to be exposition, to help us understand, you know, the, the layout and the dynamics going on between the, the, the different factions. So it is emotional, like you said, uh, Simon, and, and, it, and it can, and, and her acting as she's walking down the hall is, is again, just so well done. Her, her emotion is, it's not overdone, but it's very intense and it, and it draws you right in. But I like what you're learning from that previous interaction with Leto. Yeah, to your point, Garen, I really like, and I've seen this as a complaint from some of the, I guess, book fans, where they, you know, say, oh, well, Lady Jessica, she's so emotional. She's so, like, I'm just like, <laughs> I mean, first off, Lady Jessica is, she might be Ben and Jesuit, but she's still, you know, a human being. And, uh, and she has great control and poise of her emotions in vital situations, but it, she doesn't not feel emotion and she doesn't not show emotion either. Maybe she doesn't show it to other people, but by and large through the movie, she is very well pulled together. I mean, you say in the hall, she's coming down and yeah, she, it's very intense, but it's, it's not overdone. And five seconds later, what does it cut to? She's walking into their bedroom and she looks completely normal. Like you would have no idea she has been upset by anything. So, and, but, and actually going into the scene with Leto, she appears to be the stronger, more poised of the two characters. There's not a lot of scenes that we have of Duke, uh, Leto and Lady Jessica together, but the scenes and the moments that we do have, whether it is, you know, just a little, even back on uh, going back to the uh, Herald of the Change scene, like they just have like these little glances, <laughs> like that's all you need. Like it, there's enough there in the subtlety and just these, the great acting between these two actors that tells you what you need to know about the relationship. And then there's the hand on her neck before they leave Caladan and, you know, holding her hand as they're walking out. Um, then there's this scene. And then of course there's the scene of them in the bed together that will be added in a moment, but it, yeah, I just, I thought this was really the biggest one that kind of brings it all home and, and just gets what you need out of it before, you know, everything hits the fan here uh, shortly. It's a nice little intimate scene with two characters that can be themselves. And one thing I think people forget is 
Lido has to put up a front 90% of the time. And so does Jessica. And this is just them being raw and just being themselves, being very intimate and caring about their son. Yeah, and, and to the point about uh, Jessica being emotional, I, I would just like go back to the previous scene. Like she she's pregnant, obviously. <laughs> Uh, so, so that that tends to to add some emotions, uh, but I think the the fact that we do get to see like her in those like uh, like more intimate moments alone, like where she she does have that that freedom to express like the, that nervousness, emotions, and be less composed. I think that just adds to her char- character because that's that's just so realistic. Like everybody has you know moments where they're facing difficulties, but like how you come uh, to the day and stand up to those challenges. That's what matters, and like you know, when it comes to those uh, those moments, you know, like she she's always stand up, and we'll we'll see like late, later in the in the movie, like how you know when it comes to those crucial crucial moments, she she really is is able to uh, to take charge and and uh, uh, f- face those those challenges uh, head on. So I think uh, that that just added to her her strength as a, as a character overall. I also like the contrast that you see between. Uh, Reverend Mother Mahayam and Jessica, because Mahayam was was Jessica's instructor in the Bidding Jesuit School. And what I like is we're able to see the sides of Jessica that make her human and relatable. Um, I mean, she's a she's a parent, right? And for anyone that's been a parent, you do have to put on the strong face. You do have to say everything's going to be okay. When deep inside, you might be going. I don't know if everything's going to be okay. I don't know how this is going to go. And I'm scared, you know, but so I, I, I really like the direction uh, of, of Jessica's character in this film because it could have gone really stoic and, you know, the Bene Gesserit are very powerful and they have, a, they have, they wield a lot of power. They control a lot of things. They have full control over their physical bodies so for her to reveal kind of these weaknesses and these fears, I, I just, it endears me to, to that character. And, and I think Jessica becomes a more fleshed out, uh, full spectrum kind of a character. And I like that. Yeah. And then we had the, the foreshadowing. So where Duke Lido says, you know, I thought we had more time and it really uh, signals that, you know, we, we don't have any, any more time left because from that point like things really come to a head and like start moving very quickly so we have the scene where uh, where Paul's like going to sleep and Dr. Yui uh, comes into the room and gives him a, a drink and uh, that, that drink also contains some uh, some sedatives because uh, you know the, the next time Paul wake, wakes up uh, he's <laughs> he's uh, captured so uh, we're, we're going to discuss that and then uh, we have the scene where with uh, with Jessica and Lido on the, on the bed so like it, it's a, a more intimate scene uh, but then basically fr- from from that like uh, afterwards uh, Lido gets up from the bed and he's looking outside and the attack begins it's like full full-blown uh, warfare f- f- from that point on uh, so doing a round table with, with everyone like looking at the attack scene as a whole attack on on Eric Keen, what stood out to you uh, what what were your key takeaways um, Johnny uh, well the first thing that just popped in my head as you were describing it is the music <laughs> in the scene uh, I mean, just the way it shifts and alters, I mean, all throughout, um, you get the Harkonnen theme, you get the Atreides theme, you get the starter car theme, you get Duncan's musical cue. Um, I mean, there's just uh, everything. It just is, it's so um, elegant in, in the way that it's done. Uh, it's really, I think it's one of the most mem- memorable 
uh, parts of the movie with regards to music. I mean, Hans Zimmer's score is just so prevalent throughout, but this really guides the action and I can just, I can see the images, but I, and I can't escape the music. And I, I think that's a good thing when the music is this good. Uh, also the sound, of course, I mean, the effects, um, the designs of everything, the ships, I just, it's so well thought out and it's so well orchestrated. And, uh, you know, I think this was one of the biggest parts of the movie that they really had to get right. And one of the ones that I had been maybe been thinking the most about leading up to the actual films, you know, release and the trailers and everything, just to think, well, how are they going to envision this? And how is that going to really play out over time? You know, and the attack from beginning to end, you know, when Leto wakes up and then, um, you know, maybe when Duncan kind of escapes, it's 15 minutes or something, maybe. I mean, it's not super elongated, but you get all the right beats with all the really the main characters you need to see, whether it's, of course, Leto waking up and then getting taken down pretty quickly, which is, it's such an ominous. I mean, every time I've seen it in the theater, people are like, <laughs> they are worried about this guy. And, uh, and then, of course, I mean, once it happens, it's just, it's just a total mess and it's it's all downhill from there essentially if if nothing else they had to really get across how screwed everyone is um and there's really no escaping this like no survivors um the the beheadings uh, of all the soldiers I and mean, you just you can they really are not holding back and and the baron says that at the end when he's talking to leto he's like you know your bloodline is done like we are killing your entire family uh, your name, your house is is going to be a dead house now. Uh, it certainly, you know, again, echoes back to, for a lot of people, I'm sure, Game of Thrones. I think this is one of the most Game of Thrones-esque moments of the movie because we've seen, if you watch that show, which is one of the most popular shows of all time, if not the most, like it, there is all that plotting that goes into it and surprise attacks and, and ambushes and the the discussion of houses and the discussion of bloodlines and and trying to just wipe people off the face of the earth um so i thought i thought that it, it just was really well done it wasn't too uh flashy necessarily it wasn't too uh stilted with regards to the action i thought the action did exactly what it needed to and it looked great sounded great it's probably the most michael bay part of the movie you know it's like Johnny said, it is very much in your face. Every score, everything. It's it's the blender of every houses. I, I've never seen Game of Thrones. I've seen the first season. I couldn't get into it. Sorry, internet. If you want to tag me on Twitter, go for it. Um, just not my cup of tea. But this is big. This is epic. The stuff with Leto, just typical Memento Mori. You know you're at the end of your life you know you're gonna die and it breaks my heart every time i see it and the scene that we'll talk about in a little bit with the baron there's oh that's the most creepiest scene in the movie for me even more creepy than the spider uh i do love the scene prior with leto and jessica when he just tells her i i should have married you like that makes me cry every time I'm 43 years old. I don't care. I cry. I have a little tear every time I see that part because I'm like, oh, I love their chemistry together. They're so good. Once again, Joe Walker, give him that Oscar for editing. I like all the things you guys said. I think those are really good, really good points. The thing that uh, 
stands out to me is this kind of kind of like what you were saying, Simon, is even the first time I saw this this movie, I know exactly what's happening in this in this scene with with Leto going out and and looking out the window, so as it were, to to see something's wrong. Shields are down. Something's not going right here. Well, I know what's happening. I know I know who's gonna shoot him. I know everything. But every time he gets he gets shot in the back and his shield stops it for a minute. It is. It's emotional every time for me. It's like. He, he was this powerful leader that I cared about. He cared about his men. He cared about his people. And, and when he goes down, it's, it's just emotional. And I, I don't know what, I don't know what Villeneuve's doing there, but it, somehow it, it really draws the emotion. Um, I also love sort of the counterpoint of the same way Leto's shield didn't protect him you see, you see all those Atreides ships sort of out on the out on the landing area, and they get they get destroyed the same way with with those uh, those bombs that come down and spin and slow down and go through the shields and then spectacularly explode all these Atreides ships. I just like the contrast. It's not the contrast; it's a mirror of that same process. And I also love how. You could have, I think I said this earlier in one of our episodes, but you could have just showed sheer destruction without the human element. But it's like the camera follows Gurney uh, almost close up in some instances. And then all the men following him and you see his emotion, you see his frantic desperation to do anything to protect his house and his people. And, and so you you can you can organize and construct these shots to be very uh, emotionless, and I, I love how Villeneuve weaves the emotion into the characters in these scenes, which are very spectacular scenes. But I'm I'm feeling something for these characters. So here's my question for you guys that's seen it with someone that's not familiar with the book: Was the reveal of the assassin a surprise to anyone? Like obviously we know who's going to like. You were saying, Garen, we know when it's going to happen. We know why it happens. But is the reveal of Yui a surprise? I think it was for people who aren't familiar with it. Um, one, one criticism I have is we don't care quite as much about Yui as you do when you read the book, because you know him better in the book. But um, my family, in talking to them afterwards, that, that came as a shock to them. They didn't necessarily see it coming. Although if you watch closely, there were some very subtle hints. Um, but that was just a few people's response. I don't know, Johnny, did you? Yeah, no, I, I certainly, uh, I watched, because I've seen the movie with people who don't, you know, know anything about Dune. And I've watched, <laughs> I've, I've uh, found myself watching some, because of course it's on HBO Max, so people can do full-blown like YouTube reaction <laughs> videos to the movie. Uh, and yeah, the, the, everyone seems pretty surprised by it. Of course, you know, and and I think book readers have had have like had issue with the fact that Yui that they essentially ditched the plot behind him being, you know, alluded to as the assassin, or that they uh, ditched the plot with regards to the idea that someone in particular could be betraying them. Um, I haven't had, you know, I didn't really see it as much of an issue. And honestly, that's one of the parts of the book that I feel 
you know, no, I'm not saying it doesn't work in the book, but it's like, it's so, you know, there's the element of his wife is being used to get, you know, get access to him and to kind of motivate him to go through with this. And like, it's, it, it has never felt like super, I don't know, compelling necessarily. Like I get, of course it's your wife. Like you're going to do anything to protect your wife, but also like, you know, everyone knows, you know, part of the thing that I've seen in some of the reactions that I've watched and heard of is they're like, once you know about the wife, you're like, dude, your, your, your wife is done for <laughs> like you and your wife, you're never going to see your wife again. You're probably going to be next um, right after Leto gets killed. So it's like, that has always been an issue because it's like, you never really feel like they're, he's going to make it out. Like you never think Yui is going to be, you know, uh, let out by the Baron to go see his wife after this. Um, so for me, I think it works perfectly fine. I think it, it, I, I would prefer it to be a surprise, just flat out surprise, because I think to try and do it like it is in the book wouldn't translate as well and have the same effect as it does when you're reading it page by page for hundreds of pages. Um, but I, I, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was good. And of course, Yui, if nothing else, I think the only thing you really could have done with regards to Yui if you're going to ditch the, the traitor plot, if you're going to ditch the allusions to it being, you know, him potentially, um, I think the one thing that most people would agree on is if maybe you put a, like one other scene in there, maybe just to show him a little bit more. It's like I watched it with my sister and her fiance, again, completely new to Dune. And she and, and he, they were just like, they were so on edge and like ready to lose it when this is all going down. They're like, no, like, when Leto goes down, they're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. And then of course, with the whole tooth plot, I think that is something interesting that I think kind of, I love that they kept that basically exactly how it is in the book. Like it's introduced the same way um, and it works exactly the same way. And I think it works to pretty good effect as far as kind of keeping the audience engaged and on their toes because, you know, it's in, I think it's interesting and maybe a little bit different from what you're used to where you have someone who's a traitor they're just a traitor. Like they they decide to go to the other team for whatever reason or motivation. But with this, they've done it, but also they're kind of helping the people they're betraying. Like they're, they're okay. Well, help me kill the Baron. Okay. Here, I'm going to give this pack and put it on the thopter and, and, and give Jessica clues to figure it out. So I, I like that. I think it was all translated fairly well. And I think in terms of the adaptation, it, it did make, make sense because there, there is, all that like inner thoughts in, in the book and you know for um, for the movie they went for more showing that and like seeing that in, in the emotions so i think it would have been really complicated and would have added a lot of time and potentially interrupted the, the flow of the movie uh but it, yeah in terms of um you i think we could have seen a bit more of him but i think like the little we did get of, of him like you sort of do get the impression he's a caring person so like in terms of people who are new to the story and then like see that reveal i think it, it did did work out well, of course, for, for us who already know the book, you know, I guess we, we would have wanted to see uh, more. And yeah, I, I mentioned this in, in comments uh, as, as well, but like, the, yeah, it just, his story is, is so tragic because he basically like betrayed the, the whole house and like, uh, you know, let, let to their downfall for, for, for nothing in the, in the end, because basically like all, all this and, you know, we're, we, we, we see the results of, of that. It's, it's just like such a tragic tragic story and like uh you know like you would think like if, if things were differently like you know if he knew what was going to happen what what he would have 
would have done, but it just like feels like so so senseless in the in the end for uh, for him. Yeah, and, and another uh, aspect of, of the scene is we we've already been introduced to the different uh, factions and the different some of the different uh, cultures, um, and then here we get to see like the unique war warfare of uh, of the universe. So we've already talked about you know like penetrating the shields. And it's it's a reference late, later on that you know like Baron Harkonnen like he's he had to spend like you know like um, an immense uh, fortune to like put this attack uh, to bear, and uh, we also see here like the reason why they didn't fall the Sardaukar because you see like when you know when you have the Harkonnen soldiers first first advancing and uh, you know fighting against the Trades at some point you feel like that they're evenly matched or that the Trades like even though they're caught by surprise you know they're they're able to hold hold some ground. But then when the Sardaukar come into play, and here we have the, the decision where they decided to keep like the Sardaukar in their in their uniform, uh, th then you know you just see like what a difference this this fighting force uh, makes there, and you understand you know like why they're they're so feared. And then when it comes to the to the scene with uh, with Duncan, and you know he's he's fighting at them, you like realize how just how impressive. Uh, uh, that is, and, and that's, that whole scene with, with, with Duncan in the in the escaping, you know, just like such a cool action sequence. Like for because this movie, like it doesn't necessarily focus on, on action, but just that that escape, you know, where he's uh, tackling the starter car and then he fights the Harkonnens, and then after he's beat a few of them, the rest of them just like walk away. It's, it's just a uh, yeah, uh, just just a really brilliant scene, and we get to escape and. Uh, I remember you, you mentioned that uh, in one of the previous uh, episodes that that's one of the, um, the scenes when when Duncan is flying in the ornithopter that you get to see a little bit of, of, of from the streets, which we didn't get to see see much of. So so that, that again, I would have loved to see like some of the actual like civilians who who were living in that city and like what the effect uh, was on them. Like we don't really get to see that, but yeah, otherwise just yeah, re re really uh, impressive uh, sequence in, in in all aspects. And uh, it also in terms of the, the music, we, we, we did get to see like a bit of everything. We even had some of the Bene Gesserit themes as well. Like even though they weren't present there, we know that they were behind the, the attack in some way because they had, you know, included with, uh, with Baron Harkonnen and, you know, they're working for the, uh, for the emperor. So basically if all these events uh, came to play here and brought, brought the downfall of, uh, of House Atreides. Uh, then th things uh, start moving quickly and we sort of get like a lot of uh, parallel uh, events happening in the, consequently. So we get the, the scene on the ornithopter where uh, Lady Jessica and, and Paul uh, come through and, and they're, they're tied in, in bonds. So uh, Simon, uh, what did you think about that sequence? It's one of the most creepiest sequence in the book. <laughs> it makes me think of Clockwork Orange in a lot of ways. It, I don't know, maybe because the first time I read it, I was a young kid and I thought it was awkward. And I feel like it was, it's not awkward. It's just kind of disgusting and showing who the Harkonnens are. They are very much what Gurney was saying. They're ruthless animals. Um, I love the way it wasn't over lit. It was very much that green, like in the middle of the night type of lighting. I loved it. I thought it was very uncomfortable. And that's why I wanted from this scene. There's a couple of scenes I really wanted to be as I imagined in the book. And this was one of them. That and the tent scene. And I love, love, I can't express how much I love that Paul tries to use the voice. And she's like, you're not doing it right. And the hand motions, we go back to that. Something we saw earlier on. So what we saw there 
when she was talking to Paul before the Ganjabar scene is now important that we see that they have their own dialogue. You know, when they were doing the press tours, they were talking about how Jessica is a mother to Paul and also a teacher. And you really, really start seeing it from now on until the end of the movie. Yeah, I, I love this scene too, because we see this interaction between Atreides and, and Harkonnen in a way that uh, these are characters, obviously, that we, that we really care about at this point. Um, Jessica and Paul were, were, were really concerned about their well-being at this point. You know, we, we realize the whole house has come down and, and the plan is just to, is just to, to kill these two and, and, you know, have their bodies never be found again in the deep desert. Um, I love how accurate this was to the book. So, um, I actually really love the casting choice of the deaf Harkonnen soldier. I, I just loved his look. I loved um, the way he spoke. And I don't know if he's actually really deaf or not. It'd be really cool if he is, because I, I thought that was really well done. He is. Um, he is. That's totally cool. I love that. But it felt so accurate to the book, and I and I just felt like it was so real. And even the fact that, you know, Paul didn't get the pitch right is helping to explain a little bit more detail about, you know, the, the, what's required to make the voice work, that it takes training, it takes skill, which we learned about at the very opening scene of the film. Um, so, yeah, I, I just, I thought this was really well executed, uh, loved the casting, uh, actually, of, we, we don't really see the, the pilot of the ornithopter, he, he's facing forward. Um, but both those Harkonnen soldiers, I actually really thought were well cast and, and, and really did a great job. And then again, I just love the sound effect of the voice. Um, and when Jessica screams it, it, it really goes right to the core, you know, uh, just very frightening as a matter of fact. So I, yeah, very, very well done. This scene. It's exactly what you would want. To it to be based on what's in the book, it's pretty much spot on. And I love, as you know, I think Simon, you pointed out the green lighting, I think is great. Uh, they could have done anything for that, that you know, interior thopter light, but they went with green. I think that was just a really interesting choice and very stark. And uh, and it's like this kind of it does have like a kind of like scary quality to it, especially the way it lands on these bald, very pale, you know, Harkonnen soldiers and the voice and uh, Rebecca Ferguson as Lady Jessica, you finally get to see for really the first time in the movie, her be a badass and a killer. And she is, has no qualms or second thoughts whatsoever. It certainly, you know, I, I'm a huge Mission Impossible fan. And so her character Ilsa in, in those movies, I mean, yeah, she kicks so much ass. And so in this part, up until this part of the movie, about halfway through, you haven't seen her do any of that because she hasn't needed to. And now she can use the voice perfectly. And she has no hesitation to like, just gut these guys right in front of Paul. And there's that great reaction shot where she has the blade and kills this guy. And it cuts back to Paul and he's like looking at her and he's just like, <laughs> he just saw his mom kill someone. Um, he probably never expected that he would ever see that. And now it's happened and they're, you know, they're in this life or death situation. And yeah, it's just, uh, I, I really do. Uh, 
I loved. And it also, it, some of this is also kind of played, it's kind of played for, it's clever in a kind of humorous way as well, because you have his first attempt to use the voice and you think, oh, maybe it's going to work. And, and the guy stands up and he kind of starts walking over and you're like, oh my God, is it going to work? And then he just, no, he just slaps him or punches him in the face or, or punches him in the gut or whatever he does. Um, and then he goes, he walks back over. And then, uh, and then finally, once Jessica gets it to work and she tells him to kill the guy, he just walks right up to him and just like cuts his throat open and he just plops right out of the back of the ramp uh, where he, they were about to ditch Jessica and Paul. So um I I thought that was great. And I think uh, it just is a really nice segue into them escaping, getting onto the desert and then uh, seeing, you know, the, the damage and the remnants of Arakane after afterward. Also, is it just me or is it the most lynchy part of the movie? Just like design wise, take Paul and Jessica out of it. But those two Harkonnen soldiers could have been in like the lynch version I don't know. I, maybe that's Denise's little homage to the Lynch creepiness. Yeah, but they don't have red hair that shaved right down the top in the middle, though. <laughs> it, was, it was the 80s. Yeah, and the, the last point on that scene is not only do you see like the Benedict's ability in, t- in terms of like Jessica and using a voice and Paul attempting to, but you also understand why they're they're doing this in, in the first place, right? Because they, they reference that, you know, like they, they can't just outright kill them because like if they have to face a Benedict truth say, or like, you know, she would know the truth immediately. So, so basically you see like how this ability is so well known and it's, it's feared among them. So they really, you know, they, they can't just do, do, do something and like get away with it. They, they, they really have to make sure that they, they, they're whole, held accountable. And they'll, they'll really be able to say like, I, I didn't kill them. And then after that, we get the, that 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 scene uh, where uh, where basically uh, Paul and Jessica they, they walked out of the, the Thopter and then they they walk and it's like a really like uh, atmospheric scene like in the uh, in in the in the dusk and they look back in Arakeen and they see the, the the fires there and I just love like the the dynamics of the of the shot and you sort of like have that like uh, tension you're like are we gonna go back there like you know and like you know like how whole house has been destroyed but then you, eventually there's the decision you know we have to go out into the desert and their their journey really really begins so I, I love how they did that shot and we have all these like things things happening in, in parallel so let's like first start with the scene um with um uh, the, the the baron uh in the room with uh with with lido and and yui uh garen uh, what what was your takeaway from from that uh final scene from with duke lido yeah um so i i there's a lot going on in this scene and you know, I, I like how you're actually seeing, you know, the Baron in this, almost like he's loving his food he's eating. It's very creepy. It's very sinister. Um, all his people are standing around like their lives hang in the balance and he's just eating all this food uh, almost in a, in a weird sort of sensual way. And then you've got Leto down at the other end and it, I, I like the com- composition of the shot where he's he's laying back. He's, he has no clothes on. He's which just represents here's this person of power who is now completely humbled to the dirt. Right? He has no power anymore, and and he's likely you know going to die. So 
you know, he, he's, I, I love how he looks up. He sees the head of the bull uh, up on, up on the wall. That's obviously the, you know, the, the symbol throughout the, the first part here that talks about ominous, something's going to happen. You know, it's always leading us to know that when we see the, the bull or we see the, uh, the little figurine of the, of the bull and, and, uh, and Paulus Atreides, we know it's uh, a portent of not good things to come, right? So, um, yeah, I, I actually really, I, I like this scene because for the first time you really see how evil uh, the Baron is. I mean, we were given kind of allusions to it, but at this point you just see how just even killing a person, just he doesn't even blink an eye. It just has, life has no meaning in that way to him. But, but yet he remembers what Yui's agreement with him was. He, he just, you know, the Baron just tricked him and, and, and wasn't, you know, obviously uh, didn't hold up his end of the bargain. Obviously he's going to, he's going to kill whoever he can. So there's a lot going on in the scene. I, I just like the composition of it. And I love how we get to know the Baron even more. And, and then as it's, you know, carried out, which is pretty accurate to the book as I remember it. Um, and, and I thought Oscar Isaac just did such a great job with so few words of, of just feeling so desperate, but then taking action and, and doing what Yui told him to do. So yeah, there's a lot going on here. Well, I've been a fan of Oscar Isaac for a very long time. I think probably since I've seen him in Drive, the Ryan Gosley movie. Wow, that movie's 10 years old. Um, and I think this is Oscar Isaac at his best. Granted, he doesn't have that many lines, but just his face, his reaction, he knows it's over. Like you said, we saw the bull again. You know, it's just the Baron also. It's very much, we keep hearing He's crazy. He's insane. Very much like Vader. Like when I first saw Star Wars, A New Hope, I always thought Vader, okay, not that bad. But the scene when he takes Leia with the droid and the needle used to scare the living crap out of me as a kid. That and E.T. That's for you, Garen. Um, but that is that scene. Like you said, he doesn't care. He's like, whatever, my cousin, I'm going to kill my cousin. I don't care. I'm you're bothering me. I'm in the middle of a good meal. That's why I care more about. And it's just like, you're done. Your family is done because in his head, Paul and Jessica are going to magically disappear. They're going to, you know, it's going to be a Sopranos hit where they're going to not be seen ever again, but it's just all of that scene. That is my favorite scene in the movie because it is creepy. It is do night's best. It is, you know, two houses technically not fighting anymore because one of them's about to die. But it is performance at its best. And the way it's shot, the way it's lit, it's just gorgeous. And kudos for Oscar Isaac just standing there butt naked. I don't even want to know how long it took them to shoot that scene. You know, it's just a powerful scene. And once again, low tier because, you know, it's done. I, I don't know how I imagined it in the book exactly, but this is pretty damn close. Like it's, it's just this, uh, the, the way do and Duke Leto, the way he's positioned and the way, you know, he's totally nude and 
you know, the, the Caravaggio lighting that's going on in this scene. It's very, and there's a lot of like art and artistic references in this movie um, from the costume design to uh, things that are going on with the lighting and, and framing and whatnot. Um, uh, it's just, it, and that kind of culminates in the scene because even, even the bowl that you have mentioned that, yeah, that imagery and that symbolism is prevalent throughout the first half of this movie. And then finally comes to a head, no pun intended in this final scene with Duke Leto. Has anyone been able to hear or read ca- captions or anything or figure out Duke Leto whispers something um, before to kind of, I don't know if he's trying to get the Baron to come closer, um, but it's before the Baron leans over and turns on his shield. And then we hear what he said. We hear him say, um, here I am, here I remain. And then he bites into the capsule. But before that, he says something else. And I saw Duke, uh, Duke Leto, I saw Oscar, uh, Oscar Isaac <laughs> um, in an interview months ago or in the weeks coming up to the premiere and the release, he said something about his final scene and saying and putting something in there for the dialogue that was taken directly from something in the book, something from an inner, inner monologue. And so I, I've listened to it a few times. And I've tried to make it out. And I think what he's saying in the whisper, which I don't know if it's in the captions or not, um, maybe I'm just making this up, but I think what he's whispering is the final uh, interior monologue from the book where he says um, the flesh shapes the day and the day shapes the flesh or or however that that line goes. Um, So if that's if that is what that is, I really I, I love that because, of course, shows Oscar Isaac, he read the book and he actually really did take that away for that big scene. But um, yeah, I just, I loved, and also I was curious how they were going to do the actual pill and how it was going to break and the gas was going to come out. And I thought it was very, (laughs) very effectively done and very effectively like final and total with regards to I mean, the way everyone in the room just drops, like, and it's not like caught in this wide shot where you can just see the entire room just kind of collapse uh, all at one time. It's kind of like certain bodies are cut off and he breathes it out. And then there's a close up on the Baron as it kind of penetrates the shield to some extent. And then it's through the door behind them and it's kind of pushing out and you can just see bodies in the, in the background, in the middle ground, the foreground. Piter falls down and is clutching at his throat and then they just slam the door shut um, and the Baron kind of falls over onto the table. I, so I just thought the way it was done was very, um, and it's, it's perfectly cross cut with the ring in the tent where he's pull, he's reading through the, the Yui's note and he's going through the bag. And then finally he's pulling out. You're like, what is that? And it's the ring of course. And that Paul sees it, Jessica sees it, and we everyone knows at that point they know that he is dead. They, he's they're not ever going to see him again, and so and, it, and then it hits that that emotional realization uh, in tandem with his actual death. I thought was just very well done. Again, Joe Walker just absolutely crushes it. So Johnny, um, while you were talking, I looked on thank you HBO Max. Our time is limited now. <laughs> Uh, it is here. I am here. I remain. Okay. And so, and I was, I it's was so curious. powerful. Also, yeah. when you think about it, because what's well, that in the book? I, either is it? 
I don't think it is. Yeah. What I love about it, when you go really meta, when you think about it, here I am, Duke Leto. Here I remain. We go to Paul showing the legacy of the Atreides lives on. Joe Walker, give him that Oscar. <laughs> Come on. We as the audience know that Paul is alive. And we also know, even in, inside the Duke's head as well, he is he thinks he's gonna kill the Baron when he when he does this. And so he he's kind of maybe he's also kind of saying like you know you're you're going down with me (laughs) like this is this is going to be it for you as well you're going to die with my house and what what duke leto maybe doesn't or you know knows or maybe doesn't know i mean he thinks for all intents and purposes that paul and jessica probably not gonna make it out of this presumably i mean there's no i we know that that yui has tried to help them and he has suggested that to duke leto but he is kind of in his head he's probably like well are they even going to survive all this like what are the actual odds that they can get into the desert and get away and survive you know the heat and the worms and everything else so that's that's a really good point so i mean like there are a lot of layers and kind of meanings to that final line and how between the way it's edited, the way it's delivered and the way it's written and everything else. I think it was just, it's a, it's just a really great moment. Again, for audiences who don't know Dune, they, you know, they see his shield go up, but then they also see it kind of penetrated. So maybe people aren't totally sure. Um, but it's revealed of course, in a, you know, a few minutes later that he does survive and he has in fact like floated to the top of the room to escape the fumes and to uh, hide in the, in the corner um, I was curious because in the book, I don't really remember it being like that. In the book, I don't think it's it's like that necessarily. And and th- there are differences there because in in the book, you you sort of get the impression that he basically gets out of range uh, in time, but yeah. here it actually impacts him. And then later on, you see that he's recovering in in his uh, mud exactly. bath. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> th- th- that's that's some differences. Um, and also the the difference here is because of course in this uh, adaptation we didn't have that dinner scene that you know I know that for a lot of people who read the book uh, including my, myself like I would have loved to see that film because you know it's a scene that has so much uh, depth in, in the book and like there's there's even like uh, on audible recording available of uh, Frank Herbert himself reading that that scene and it gives like so much insights about what he what he intended uh, of there's just like a powerful scene but uh, going back to that final line from from Duke Leto that that line is is actually from the dinner scene in the in the book because um, Duke Leto he he receives his, his guests and you can see that there's a lot of tensions in in room about the different factions and you know people are not happy about you know how he's changing the the customs and he like does a toast in the in, in defiance here I am here I remain and then he he throws the water out of his glass so we didn't get ah. the dinner scene but we got to see that same defiance here because basically he's. Uh, you know, in his last last moment, he's gonna, yeah, he he thinks as he, as you said, he's gonna be killing the killing the Baron and uh, taking him him done done with it. Johnny, your your question was, you know, feeling about the 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 adaptation where, you know, the Baron ends up on the ceiling and and escapes death. Um, if I if I remember right, and I'm not remembering this scene from the book uh, as clearly as I'd like, but I think. Uh, Lynch's 84 film actually does a little better job to reflect what's in the book because I think what, what happens is he he does kind of mistake Piter 
for the the Baron, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, and and they didn't really do that. Uh, Denis didn't really do that here. Although we see we see Piter die pretty instantly, but it wasn't as though, you know, I think in the book Piter leans forward and is speaking. The the Baron is there, but then the Baron kind of moves back, and Leto can't really see the medication. The you know is is affecting his his reasoning, and so. He thinks it's the Baron. So maybe you'll have to correct me on that, uh, uh, Marcus. But I, I think this adaptation just sort of expands that a little bit or, or disconnects it a little bit. But, but the same effect is happening. It's like it, it sort of leads to another reveal, like you were saying, Johnny, a few minutes later of, oh, my gosh, this Baron's still alive. Because we don't know when those doors close, it, it sort of makes us think everybody in that room died. Yeah, and then as we were mentioning earlier, we, we have the, the editing. All these things are apparently happening in, in parallel, you know, like the when uh, when Paul and Jessica see, see the ring and it's the same, same moment when, when Leto dies. So, like, uh, yeah, really, really well put together. Uh, but then once uh, that, that passes, we, we see, uh, we stay on, on the two of them in the still tent. And then there's the, the mention that there's, there's spice in the, in the still tent still tent and like something further starts starts awakening in in Paul um and I've mentioned before that this is uh you know my, my favorite scene scene from the movie uh start, starting with with you uh uh Garen th thinking about th this scene what was your key takeaways about uh the interaction and the dreams my favorite scenes are all the ones with ornithopters in them but you're asking me a different question so I really like how we see the full weight of what Paul is realizing is going to happen in the future. So, um, you know, there's a lot of symbolism in, in the dreams uh, that he's having. And, and, and I love kind of like Johnny, I, I love the cinematography where you see this tinkling of the, of the spice in the air and the still tent. I just, I, I love that so much because it's telling you that this spice is having an effect on him and it's affecting his, his uh, prescient abilities. Um, I think. I think what stands out for me the most is um, I always love watching the audience jump when when Paul sort of uses the voice for a moment there on his mom because he's so angry because um, everybody always jumps they don't know what's coming. But just the the level of fear that you see Paul have and and Timothy did a great job of instilling that just desperate where he's, he's kicking, you know, the sand against to push himself up against the wall of the still tent, almost get away from the truth that he's seeing that his name will be used to, to, as we know, uh, you know, kill millions of people. And, 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 and so the, the audience is sort of realizing, my gosh, this guy is like, he's panicking over something that he's seeing in his dream sequence and, and then we see, you know, the symbolism of, of him, uh, you know, with his troops and the, the interaction that, that happens uh, and, and him uh, looking like kind of this emperor-like figure, right, which, which we know about. So I just thought it was really well uh, written and really well acted uh, because you could have created something ultra complicated and ultra confusing in the still tent. But instead, it holds to the reaction and the interaction between mom and son. And then it's the fear that almost overcomes Paul. 
And then Jessica has the courage to, to reach out and, and hold Paul again. Um, this is where we finally get to see Paul. And I hate going back to, and quoting the Lynch movie in a way because it is the sleeper has awakened. Paul has finally snapped. He's taken, you know, the white pill or the blue pill, whatever Neo goes on. This is where he, this is Xiaomi at his best. And you're right. The reaction in his face from the beginning of the movie, he looks like a little kid. And finally, we see him grow up and being like, what is going on? Like, I am terrified. Why is this happening to me? And I love that he tells Jessica, what have you done to me? You know, why did you make me have these visions? And I feel like that's something that's going to be going on for a while. And, you know, if you read the book, you know, there's a love-hate relationship with them. But it's Xiaomi and Rebecca Ferguson at their best. And the symbolism of the ring and Paul realizing, okay, this is going to happen. And I have to tell myself I can stop it or I can embrace it. And that's Paul's journey, really. And it's just beautiful and kind of sad and scary. And I don't think people are ready for what Paul will do in the name of House of Trades in a couple in a couple years. Xiaomi fanboys and fangirls, you might want to look for a new hero. <laughs> um, no, uh, this is so, I mean, this is probably, honestly, this is going to be the scene where I think people in a couple, you know, it's two, three years. And then, you know, presumably there'll be a third movie. Fingers crossed. But I think this is going to be the scene, like, for years, people are going to come back to the scene and watch it and be like, they're going to pull it apart. They're going to be like, oh, my God, this is what this is. This is what th that meant all along. Um, this is where this was going. Uh, and I just absolutely love this scene. I think you certainly have a different appreciation for it if you're a fan of the book, especially if you've read past the first book, if you've read Dune Messiah, for example. It, uh, it just is so good. And this is the scene that does really maybe more than anything else in the movie. I mean, I think the movie does it a fantastic job of showing that Paul and the Atreides in general are not heroic figures necessarily. There are, there are hints and things sprinkled throughout and just, just little details that, uh, that are uncomfortable and, and make you feel like this isn't quite right. And, but this scene is like, if you missed all the other stuff, I'm just going to bash you over the head with the fact that bad stuff is going to happen and bad stuff is going to happen because of Paul. Paul is going to make these decisions. He's going to lead these bad things. And I think that's what more than anything else, if people are like, well, why is it? Uh, this seems like a white savior narrative. This seems like, uh, you know, that this is just, uh, you know, Paul, you know, mighty whitey, <laughs> Paul Trades going out into the desert and saving the Fremen and all these other things like, Oh, it's, it's really not, it's going a completely different uh, direction than what you expect. And I think this just shows like, I mean, he says the dialogue is so damn good and it's, it's basically the way it's written is straight out of the book. Like it is the tent scene essentially to a T visions included. Um, you have the Fremen, you have the, you know, Fede Keen, 
warriors bowing and kneeling and looks amazing and the the weirding way in action like we get the smallest little glimpse of it later on in the movie when they which we'll talk about later but when they run into the fremen in the desert and and um lady jessica has to take down stilgar and you see her like do this like crazy flip and like like walk up a rock and like spin around and get behind him um and and we know where that's kind of leading to and we get a, a vision of that here and it's just like they're popping out of the sand and they are like flying through the air and like doing these crazy acrobatics and taking on like two three four start a car at a time like no problem uh these are not even the fremen that we know in this movie that we see fight in this movie i mean these are going to be like unstoppable uh you know killing machines and that's one thing I think even thinking about part two and I won't go into like spoilers necessarily, but people, and I'm curious how they're going to depict it because they could change it. I mean, this is just, this is just how it is based on the book, but like the Fedekin are so out, they outmatch the Sardaukar so significantly. And there are so many of them in the millions as we, as we kind of know based on the numbers that Duncan brings earlier in this movie, but like, the the any sort of big battle with these guys is not going to last very long <laughs> like it's not really even going to be a battle necessarily it's just going to be like a slaughter um and that's that's really the point it's not about the fact that these these people are going to go and fight anyone they're going to just demolish them and that's really what happens as we know he says paul says you know the Atreides banner waving and then you know killing in my name and this unquenchable fire and literally, I mean, we see, I'm glad they kept this in the movie. I wasn't sure if it was just something that was going to be in the trailer and then it would have to end up getting cut for the movie. But I mean, we see piles of bodies burning <laughs> across uh, seemingly different planets and things like that and bloody Fedekin warriors and, and, and Chris Knives. And um, it, this is no joke. And there is the mention of Duke Leto's, Leto's skull and people worshiping at his skull. And that is, that's a very specific thing that happens and comes on later. Um, not even necessarily in this first book, but it just, it just, oh man, I'm so glad Villeneuve is like a legit fan of the books and has read all of it. Because, you know, if you just got someone to make this movie who hasn't read the book even, or maybe not read past the first book, like, I don't, I don't know how this scene would be depicted necessarily. It would not have any of the depth or the symbolism it's everything in one scene that is to come. And I just, it just makes me so giddy when I was watching the, watching this the first time and it, it played out the way it did. I was just so glad to see that they didn't shy away from this messaging or from this imagery that we get in the scene, because it is so critical. Um, as, as Simon rightly pointed out, this is the point of no return. This is like, he is awakening. He is, um, the, the brakes are not getting applied on this thing <laughs> like at, the, at this point like it's going forth and uh it's just time to see what what all is going to happen remember last week when i mentioned the shadow cars are not the best warriors in the galaxy <laughs> i think that scene with uh with paul and and chani you know up in the ship and and, and all the 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 fedakeen soldiers down below and everything I really think that sequence or that even that shot is for all of us who've read the book, because I really think 95% of people who saw Dune and didn't read the book, they haven't grasped 
what's ahead yet. And I think, I think Villeneuve was really wise to not bowl everybody over with the future of Paul Atreides and, and what his, what his, what his rulership is going to be like, because I think it would have really confused people because you're at this moment, like, like you guys have already said, where Paul is awakening to who he really is and what his, his role is going to be. And I think if, if Villeneuve had overwhelmed us with the future of Paul Atreides, which isn't what people think it is, at least those who haven't read the book, I think that could have been really overwhelming. So um, the fact that that shot where you see uh, both Paul and Chani looking down on all those, those, uh, those soldiers down there and you see their blue eyes, you, you see the look on their faces, which is very, uh, very overlord-like. I knew exactly what Villeneuve was doing there. I knew exactly where this was going and it made me go, okay, again, he knows this story, thank goodness. But none of my family had any clue what was happening there or what that truly means. So I just think that was played really subtly, but also very wisely. From my point of view, as a book reader, uh, you know, albeit, I think it does a good job putting in those little hints and, and getting that messaging across. And this is the, the key scene for that. But for part two, I mean, I'm super curious to see like what the script is going to be like for this and how they're going to position these characters the journey they're going to have to go through over the course of two and a half, three hours for the movie. And then, you know, spoiler alert, like years in, in the movie, um, like there's going to have to be significant changes and there's going to have to be significant, um, you know, bad things happening. Like I want to be that kid that ruins Christmas and tell everyone what happens. And also I don't want to be that kid and be like, you know, it's like, do you tell them? Or do you let them be like, <laughs> what the? Yeah, and, and we've we just gone over like how important this scene is and how much different things are, are happening in the scene. But like, it's, it's good to take a moment to step, step back and realize that this is all happening inside a tent with, with two people. And like all these like, you know, like universe changing events are just happening like in this, in this intimate moment. And I thought that was just so powerfully edited together in the scene. And uh, yeah, it, it was close to how I imagined in the, in, the, in the book, but like also the way that the visuals are, because they, they literally are in a sand dune, like under the ground when this is this is happening. So basically, Paul is literally in dune and awakening. Uh, uh, so it's, it's just like symbolically uh, so powerful there. And yeah, j just just the dreams like we, we got to see the, the knife again. So this mm. is the, the second time we see that that Chris knife uh, on the ground in, in a sheaf. And it's, it's going to be, we're going to see it a couple a uh, couple more times. So that, that's significant. The range of uh, emotions, like uh, of Paul and how Timothy Chalamet per portrayed it, like that, that moment where, where he's uh, like, basically like, somebody help me, please. You just feel that desperation uh, in him. Uh, but then like late, later on in, in the morning, you know, like he's, he's fully recovered. And you see from, from that point, he's, he's in control and like, you know, going, going to face it. Yeah, it's just like a... Uh, powerful uh, transformation overall. I was just going to say, I know we're way over, but I, I just want to point something out. Um, there is a really important uh, dialogue interaction between Paul and Jessica in the still tent that, that Villeneuve completely left out of the script. And, and if you guys know what I'm yes. talking about, 
this is going to be the ultimate reveal in part two. And, and I'm just going to say it, this is a spoiler alert, but this is where George Lucas completely lifted out a part of Dune and put it right into star Wars. Right. Because this is, this is the shocking moment where you realize the familial relationships between the houses, even though we've already heard the Baron when he's, when he's eating sensually at his table, he says, wonderful kitchen cousin. You know, he's talking to Leto at the other end of the, the, uh, the table, but, but Denis left it out. He didn't include that part. And, and maybe he was trying to simplify the still tent to make sure we're not completely o- overwhelmed, but. I like that he left out that part because I feel like very much like Faye, like we, when we started the show, um, it is a big reveal and keep it for a second part. Mm. So make people go, whoa, a couple times. You want those whoa moments. And what I was going to say is there's two people I want to be when I grow up. I want to be Dave Grohl and Joe Walker. <laughs> I, I'm too, Garen, I honestly, so this is a big part of the book that I always forget about. <laughs> I it's don't know. Crucial. I don't know if I can't be the only like the only one, but I feel like I am probably one of the few that I always forget about this. But it is true that does happen in the tent scene, and I'm I, I agree. I'm glad they left it out because it could get lost in all of the other intense things that are happening and revelations in that scene. And and, and that's not the only reveal of this type that they didn't uh, tackle in this movie, and we'll we'll, we'll touch on that now, uh, next week because I think that will will fit good into discussion there. But yeah, I mean, uh, Denis Villeneuve has, has said it himself. He's intentionally kept a, a lot of elements to part two, like kept uh, retained that that sense of uh, mystery, and I, I think that's going to yeah, especially for I think for, for both people who who have and haven't read the books, like because we're excited to see how how exactly this, this is going to play out. Yeah, so that's. Uh, all for uh, for this week's part of the review. Uh, make sure to, to join us uh, next week for the final uh, part of this uh, movie review series. So looking forward to, to discussing the, the the ending and some of the reveals there. Yes, everyone. Thank you for tuning in yet again. Um, yeah, please do. I know Simon mentioned it earlier in the show, but leave comments, leave your thoughts. Uh, definitely going to hit hit the comment section uh, as best I can and see what people are thinking. Um, but I, yeah, I'm really enjoying digging into this. I'm remembering things because I haven't seen the movie in a couple of weeks now. So I'm like picking up on different details and love, love discussing this. I'm, uh, I'm going to be sad when we're done talking about it. Oh, uh, fingers crossed, though, probably everyone's wet, ready for us to be done with this next week. Uh, and I look forward to that. So see you then. Uh, this is Garen. Uh, really appreciated all the comments today from the guys. I, I'd really love to know kind of what uh, our, our listeners out there think about some of our ideas because you know, we, we have our perspective, but, but you all have your perspective and be really cool to hear what, what you have to say. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Dune Companion. So I think your Thanksgiving, uh, what you guys are going to be thankful for is that we're going to be done soon with the commentary. But honestly, thank you for everyone that's been watching them. Um, I know we got some fun stuff planned and we're almost there, people. And this is uh, Marcus Gabriel. You can find me at dunewsnet.com and dunewsnet on social media. So talk to you all next week. We hope you've enjoyed Dune Talk. Remember to like, subscribe, and turn on notifications so you know when the next episode drops. Stay tuned to dunewsnet.com and add us to your social feeds. Be the first to hear breaking news and reviews. <laughs>